This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. There's a moment when Wild E. Coyote has just run off the cliff and he's levitating and he hasn't quite realized he's levitating, but then his eyes widen and he realizes that he's not over the cliff anymore. He's over nothing but thin air. And then he realizes, and then he plunges. While E. Coyote, for those who don't remember or aren't old enough, comes from a cartoon. While E. Coyote is a coyote, and he's in the desert chasing a bird, the Roadrunner. It's depicted, this cartoon, out in the deserts of Arizona or southern Utah somewhere. While E. Coyote never really catches the Roadrunner, and the Roadrunner's constantly luring him into these traps. And he's constantly running into rocks or having rocks dropped on his head or running off of cliffs and then levitating for just a second. And then he realizes he's levitating, defying the laws of physics, and then down he goes to his fate. It feels sometimes like the entire world is in a wild E. Coyote moment as I speak. It feels like something monumental has changed about our world. And we're at the confused stage. We're levitating we're not on the cliff anymore. We're levitating over nothing. We're confused, and we haven't quite realized it yet. But it kind of feels like once we really understand what's happening, we're going to plunge. Now, in the case of Wiley e. Coyote, he plunged down to the bottom of the desert floor, down to the bottom of the cliff, to his, you know, to be mangled. He never, he never died in these cartoons. He just got smashed up and mangled. And it feels like we're going to plunge somewhere. Hopefully it won't be as destructive. I don't think it will be, but it is unknown. Once we perceive that we're levitating, defying the laws of physics, that our world has changed, once we're suddenly aware of this change, we will move very quickly and it will feel like a plunge of sorts, I I suppose. I guess the acceleration will be like that, but we're going to move somewhere to a new way of doing Every, I feel like almost everything we do on earth will change. And the uncertainty and the fear associated with that uncertainty at this juncture, I think is high collectively across the globe, not just in our community or in our country even. And the virus, of course, was a catalyst to bring about this change. But the forces of change have been building for a long, long time, at least since the great financial crisis, maybe since the year 2000. But regardless of your views on when it all began, it does feel like there are a lot of great forces coming to a crescendo and uncertainty and change and the unknown. Well, it's scary. If you're like me, the economic uncertainty is scary. The social uncertainties are scary. We see the great institutions of our time, the government, the federal bank, the safety nets stepping in. But collectively, we're not sure if that's a good thing or if that's a bad thing. We're not sure if that's really supporting us all or if that's some sort of subtle confiscation of everything that we've built. And so in addition to all the uncertainty, economic, societal, we also can feel very powerless to do anything about it. We're just waiting, it feels like, levitating over nothing sometimes. That's how it feels. And the vibe of the hour, the vibe of the moment, the increasing feeling that's out there collectively is fear. 
And fear is the belief that something terrible is coming and that that something terrible is going to inflict something painful, something that we can't endure upon us or will force us into doing something we don't want to do. In that sense, fear enslaves us. Fear is especially potent as well when we don't recognize that it's there. That's, that's the weirdest thing of all. It's most potent and controlling and manipulative of us when we try to push it away and not acknowledge it, when we act like we don't have any fear at all. That's what's so weird about fear. Paradoxically, it can be palliative when you're very specific about your fears because it, it forces you to recognize them, to confess them, to acknowledge them. And the more specific you are, the more liberating that can be. Of course, one does that to get past fear. One does that to liberate oneself from fear. And when you're liberated from fear, you can get back into the present moment. And in the present moment, you find that there really is not a lot to fear this exact moment. I had a very interesting conversation with my daughter last night. She had recently moved from Provo to Salt Lake. She has a roommate. Her roommate had just secured two jobs, actually. And then the day after her roommate had secured these jobs, she was furloughed. This was about a month ago, six weeks ago or so. And so for the past six weeks, my daughter's roommate, who is completely on her own, is a young college grad in her early 20s, has had no means of income at all. And my daughter drove her to the Bishop's storehouse to get food. And my heart sort of ached for this young woman. And I asked my daughter, well, that must have been hard. How, how is your roommate doing? And my, my daughter said very nonchalantly, oh, oh she's fine. It was, it was no big deal, really. And my daughter's been sharing what she has with her, and we've been sharing what we have with our daughter. And nobody's getting rich here. I mean, me, my daughter, her roommate. But it's not as scary in the moment as all of our worries were six weeks ago, particularly her roommate. Her roommate was quite worried six weeks ago, my daughter told me. And I can only surmise but she probably projected all sorts of horrible outcomes. But then when they actually came and she actually had to go to the Bishop's storehouse and had to sort of rely on her roommate and we're all kind of sharing and somehow it's not as bad in the moment. It reminded me of other times that I've suffered and I put that in quote marks. I've quote suffered. And as I think back to those events, what I realize is that going through the quote suffering, going through the actual events, that, that was not the difficult part. That part was, you know, could have been easier, but, but that was not the hardest part. The hardest part was the anticipation of the events that represented the suffering. That was what was the real anguish for me, the worry about the events before they happened. And when the events actually came, they, it, it actually wasn't as big of a deal. Fear can serve another purpose as well. It can drive us towards a higher power, a smarter, more powerful being who can teach us new perceptions, new ways of experiencing, new ways of anticipating what's going to happen and new ways of experiencing what is happening. In that sense, fear can serve as the catalyst that leads to a change in our very thought processes in our very perceptions. There's a guy I know who, during the last great financial crisis, basically lost everything. 
my friend Luis, originally from Colombia, he joined the church after meeting a pair of sister missionaries who taught him. He then, a year later, served a mission in Colombia. He then immigrated to the U.S., and he married the American sister missionary that taught him about the church. When he arrived in the U.S. as a newly married young man, he spoke no English. He learned English. He went to college. He had a couple children with his wife. And by the time the great financial crisis in 08-09 hit, he was in his early 40s. It was then that he learned that his wife of 16, 17 years had been carrying out an affair with another Colombian man and then subsequently divorced him. He moved into a small basement apartment as near to his children as he could find. I was in touch with Luis throughout this process. The divorce, the moving out, the financial strains, fighting over alimony, child support, the obliteration of any status that he had enjoyed in the community, in the ward. At the beginning of it, as he looked forward prospectively, there was a lot to fear. And as each step of this experience unfolded in real time, there were things that were, you know, as measured by just about any standard, not great. Limited money, limited resources, limited agility to react to problems, limited time with his kids, judgment that he received or suffered by those around him, particularly people in the church, frankly, people who didn't know what to say to him, and so they just avoided him. But his perceptions and therefore his experience of all of these things changed over time. And in the moment, he would often say, well, it it is what it is. You know, I just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. He turned to a higher power. The other thing that can happen to us when we're deeply fearful is a higher power can sense our fear and will turn to us. The most miraculous experiences during periods of great fear and suffering are those times when the higher power comes and gets us, comes and saves us. Luis experienced that as well. There are two great stories in our holy books about fear and God and perceptions and thought processes and circumstances, and our perceptions of those circumstances, and how it all interacts and changes, and the role of fear as a catalyst. The first, of course, is the story of Job. Job is in the Old Testament. Job the man lived sometime after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in a place called Uz, U-Z, Uz. And at the beginning of the story, Job has everything one could ever want, He is everything one could ever want to be. He's wealthy, and in those days, back in Old Testament times, wealth was measured by flocks and herds, and and he had flocks and herds and animals and lands. He had a wife. He had a house full of children. His children were married. He had grandchildren. And by the way, he was righteous. He had status. He did things right. He did the right ordinances and performed the right rituals. And so not only did he have everything, he appeared to be someone who deserved everything because he did everything right. And so God sort of owed it to him. That's how it's all set up in the first chapter of Job. Then by the end of chapter one and during chapter two, 
everything goes wrong for Job. And when I say everything, I mean everything. All of his flocks die. All of his children die. He loses everything. Then he gets covered with boils. So he loses his health, his wealth, his family, everything. And he's left destitute. Now, the reason that I mentioned that the story of Job is also a story about fear is not because we see Job's fears ahead of time. We don't know if he even anticipated this moment. We don't know if Job had the great levitation moment like Wild E. Coyote. The story just describes this rapid destruction of his life, and he maybe couldn't even see it coming. It just hit him like a, like a truck. But the story's told in such a way that it makes the reader fearful. It makes the reader think, man, whatever's going good can change quickly, and then it can be really horrible. So as you're reading this, you, the reader, become fearful, and you start anticipating, oh, how horrible it would be if, if my life changes in, in these bad ways. And oh, how capricious God and the world and fate and all this seems. Oh, and you know, it, 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 the way the story's written stirs up fears in us, the reader or readers. And for about 35 chapters in the middle of the book of Job, we see Job wrestling with why this happened. And this exacerbates our fears as readers. Because Job, for 35 chapters, again, he's described as uber-righteous in chapter 1, and then by the end of chapter 2, he's lost everything. Then he spends the next 35 chapters of the book trying to figure out why his fate had soured. And why it had soured so rapidly and so severely. And he can't come up with an answer. And Job's inability to come up with an answer exacerbates our fear as we're reading this story. And so the, the fear as a reader just compounds chapter after chapter after chapter. I mean, it's, it's a little tedious, frankly, but it's also scary because here's this uber-righteous guy and he can't figure it out at all. And none of us are as righteous as Job. And so this might just happen to us. I mean, it's terrifying. Meanwhile, he's got these friends. They come by ostensibly to comfort him, but all they do is interrogate him, trying to get to the bottom of what great sin he had committed. Job, all these horrible things must have happened to you because of some great sin. What is it? Confess it, repent. And this, of course, terrifies us because the last thing any of us want when things start going wrong is for our friends to look askance at us and think, oh, what great evil has, has this person done to deserve this? This loss of status is almost as painful as the boils that Job's covered with. Luis experienced the same thing. There was a great loss of status associated with his wife leaving him. It's, it's the oddest thing about life on this planet. You know, when things start to go bad for you, that's hard enough, but then everyone starts to judge you. It's the weirdest thing. Anyways, that's all happening to Job concurrently. And the harder Job fights against the injustice of it all. The harder he fights with his friends in defense of his own character, the worse it gets. He's completely powerless. And perhaps it's that sense of powerlessness that represents the apex of Job's own fear. As a reader reading the story of Job, it seems to be the worst moment in the whole book. But I think it's also the moment when Job's entire perception begins to change. Because it's after he defends himself, his character, the injustice of it all, his lack of power, 
his inability to understand it. When that all reaches a climax, it's then that Job says, I guess God can do whatever he wants. It's his first acknowledgement that maybe there's a power greater, smarter, more intelligent than he is. I mean, Job always knew that there was a God, but it's kind of his first, you kind of get the feeling it's the first time he really viscerally understood his relationship vis-a-vis God. And that's when God, by the way, also shows up to confirm for Job some of these suspicions. There's this long chapter in which God lists off all of his great powers for Job. And and it, it almost reads like God's gloating a little bit. You know, I've created all the sea monsters. I've created the whole earth. What have you done, Job? And and it reads a little bit like, you know, God's... The only, the only word I can think of is gloating. It sounds like he's gloating, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think what he's trying to tell Job is, you can let go. I'm stronger than you. And Job, in his own way, does sort of totally let go and accepts God's supremacy. That was what Job needed to do, by the way. Often a takeaway from Job is we all need to do exactly what Job needed to do. I don't think that's the takeaway. I think the takeaway is that's what Job needed to do, to have his perceptions changed, to have his understanding of his place, his role in the world changed. I think the only universal takeaway from the story of Job is that we're going to have our own misunderstandings, our own misperceptions corrected in some way, for the better, by the way. But, but our specifics are going to be different than Job's were. In the end of the book of Job, Job's actual circumstances then change once his mindset has. After he has made this internal change, all that he lost was restored to him, and then some. He got a new family. He got twice the herds, twice the flocks that he used to have. And we, the fearful readers, see that there is resolution. God is generous. Change is good. Even if the portal to change is through fear. The second story is the story of Alma the Younger in the Book of Mormon. And again, I know some of you have hang-ups about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. And I don't think it matters what your view is on that one way or the other, because the story on its face is so profound. In the story of Alma the Younger, he's this mean, selfish, narcissistic, cruel guy, a bully. And he's going around Zarahemla picking on all the goody two-shoes as he perceives them. All the Boy Scouts living in Zarahemla were being verbally abused by by this jerk. I mean, we've seen this tableau, haven't we? Because all of us have gone to high school, and we've all known the big, strong, highly intelligent, fast-talking jerk who goes around picking on everybody. For, and who can explain it? Who can explain this sort of conduct? Well, that, that's my perception of Alma the Younger, just this, this jerk. And Alma the Younger, I think, kind of knows he's a jerk, but he likes being a jerk. And then one day he has this Paul-like experience. An angel shows up and says, why are you doing this? Why are you being such a jerk? Why are you being so mean to all the goody two-shoes who go to church? And this appearance of an angel to Alma, well, it 
as it would probably for most of us, it surprises him a lot. You know, be like Biff from Back to the Future confronting an angel. I mean, that would, you know, probably surprise Biff. Well, it surprised Elman. and he collapsed to the ground. In fear, by the way. Again, the great portal of fear. And as he collapses to the earth in fear, he, he descends into this dreamlike vision. He's unconscious, and, and he leaves this world, and he goes to some other realm, and he descends in this vision, this dream, into hell. And while he's in hell in this trance, in this dream, he, he confronts, he comes face to face with, recognizes, perhaps for the first time in his life, the fear his own fears, which is an odd thing to say, because on the one hand, he's collapsed to the ground in fear, yet while he's in this trance or this dream, he's recognizing for the first time his fear. And that's, a, that's an important distinction to make. Because as I said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of us can be paralyzed by fear and yet not even know there, there is fear in our life, not even recognize our own fear. That's when fear is really dangerous, when you don't even recognize it when you ignore it for so long that it makes you collapse in a heap on the ground. Well, that's what happened to Alma. He became so frightened by this angel, yet he had pushed his fear so deep inside him and hidden it so effectively that it forced him to collapse on the ground. And then when he's in this trance, he recognizes it for the first time. And when he recognizes his own fear, he realizes he's in hell because that's what hell is. Hell is a place of fear, A, but more importantly, unacknowledged fear. And that's where Alma the Younger finds himself, in a place of absolute terror. And like Job, he can't figure it out. He can't get out. He's trapped until he asks God to save him. And in the case of Alma, he asks God to take away his sins, to take away the horror, the self-loathing, the hatred he had of himself for all the terrible things that he had done as a bully, as a jerk for so very long. What a tangled web fear weaves. It drove him to be the bully. It drove him into hell. And fear does not release its victims. Certainly, Unacknowledged fear doesn't. But a funny thing happens when you recognize fear, when you acknowledge it, and when you ask something, somewhere, something bigger, a higher power, God, to help you deal with your fear, with the specifics of your fear. And the specificity is key here. Miracles can happen. And that's what happened to Alma the Younger. He called out and said, I've been ensnared by fear, and here I am in hell. And by the way, we've all been there. That's why I love the story of Alma the Younger. We've all been in that place. And if you haven't, well, don't worry. It'll come for you in one shape or form or another. Because fear is its own independent beast. And it'll come for you. But as the story of Alma the Younger shows, as the story of Job shows... Getting out of fear is as simple as changing one's mind. Of course, changing one's mind isn't simple at all, unless God's there. 
to help us. And in the case of Alma the Younger, the angel found Alma. The experience of hell made his fear so obvious. And then things began to change for him. Once he acknowledged his fear, begged to be saved from it, and his own horrible conduct and his own fears about the consequences of his horrible conduct, then he was saved without condition, by the way. Because at that point, he was on the other side of the portal of fear. And on the other side is change. And the specifics for all of us are different. What my friend Luis needed was different than what Job needed, which was also different than what my daughter's roommate needed, which, of course, is much different than what Alma the Younger needed, or what I need, or you need. And sometimes we'll seek God, and God will come to us. And sometimes we don't even know how to seek God, and God will come to us. And sometimes we can see our fears so clearly, and sometimes they're so repressed, so deep inside us, that they paralyze us. And we don't even know why. But all fear serves a purpose too. Fear is a tool in the hand of God, like everything else. It feels as though everything might be changing as I speak. It feels as though we're levitating with nothing beneath our feet, and a plunge is certain, which causes us a great deal of fear. But fear is a start, a marker of a new beginning. It's a portal to a better place. And sometimes we have the gumption to reach for God, and sometimes we don't. But God comes anyway to change how we perceive and experience which then changes our circumstances. Fear, it turns out, might be just what we need. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.